the Slate Political Gabfest. January 4th, 2024, the Who Wants to Be President of Harvard edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. Happy New Year, Gabfest listeners. Uh, we missed you over the break. Um, that's okay, because we're all back. When I say all, I mean Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And when I say all, I mean John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City. Hello, John. Hello. Happy New Year. I'm still sad in the new year that I wasn't with you for the conundrum show, but there we are. Let's not start the new year on a down note. I'm just happy to be with you now. Exactly. This week on the GabFest, we will preview what promises to be a long, gory, and extremely consequential year in American politics, and especially preview the Biden-Trump presidential rematch. Then Claudine Gay resigned as president of Harvard. Did she deserve to go? What is the place of elite higher education in this poisonously divided nation? And then homicide plummeted in the U.S. last year. And so did most other crime. Why aren't Americans celebrating? Why are they so frightened of crime that is declining? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. It's going to be a long, possibly terrible year in American politics. The presidential election is shaping up to be a rematch between President Joe Biden, who is old and surprisingly unpopular and whose supporters seem ever more reluctant to praise him, and former President Trump, whose campaign could be interrupted by criminal trials, probably will be interrupted by multiple criminal trials. Trump is certainly the favorite based on polling today because Biden has been shedding young voters and non-white voters. Uh, Meanwhile, on the other side of Washington, the Democrats have only a narrow chance of holding on to the Senate. The House is probably a toss-up. We cannot predict what will happen. Uh, But we want to talk about what to look for as the year unfolds, what dynamics could really matter. Nobody in the entire world that I would rather ask this question to, John, how should we look at this campaign as the year goes on? Because there's obviously going to be these moments, these sort of uh, 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 cataclysmic moments for one side or the other, these dramatic episodes here and there, some hot story that explodes and seems to change everything. You're very good at looking at these things sort of in a tidal sense in the in the long arc of history. So how should we look at this without going crazy and being yanked and and having uh, uh, AFib? Wow. There is no wheat that can create that loaf of bread. Um, I, I, I don't know. Let's, um, well, let's just break off something and go forward. So as you point, as you, as you say, this is a race, looks like it's going to be a race where you have two thirds of the country doesn't want, or two thirds of those polled don't want this match, this rematch. Um, and then that immediately leads me to the question of one of the things that makes it so difficult, given all of my instincts to, to talk about this race or any race, is that citing any poll about anything is a mess. Response rates with polls and the science of polling is uh you know, under significant strain. That's the first thing. And then interpretation and understanding of polling is kooky. In other words, in 2022, you had a lot of people who said, I don't like Joe Biden. I don't approve of the way he's doing his job. And I think he's mishandling the economy and the economy is the number one thing I'm going to vote for. And then they voted for the Democrat. 
And so you have this disconnect between the traditional way we have perhaps wrongly extrapolated from opinions about a president and people's vote preference and um, the way people actually behave. And yet <laughs> we're going to be eating polls constantly. Um, and, and a lot of them are going to be um, junk. You know, we shouldn't expend any time on them. On the other hand, some of them will be interesting and tell us something about the country. So that's a problem. So we have this race that you described, David, and then we have all of our traditional ways of looking at it being really up for grabs. Um, I think the way to think about the race or the way I'm trying to do it is to keep trying to center myself on like, what are the most important things that we should be discussing that really matter to the country and over which a president has some um, huge influence? And and then I think it's this other question is important because the president does have influence over this. What kind of person do you want creating the list of priorities for the federal government and for their party? Um, do you want a person uh, who cares about um, long-term issues um, and uh, or a person who, you know, Donald Trump has said his campaign or his presidency is going to be founded around retribution? Who creates the priority list? And will the issues that you care about be in the priority list of that person as they set the direction for their administration as, and as they combat the incoming? And then secondly, that administration, when they're handling issues, who do you want to have, who, who do you want them to have in mind? Do you want them to have in mind the whole country as a president should? Uh, or do you want them to have in mind only their very narrow interest, which might even be so narrow, it's down to the interests of the single president and no one else. So those are the two things I would try to sort every issue and moment through. And if something doesn't matter relative to those two questions, who is going to create the priority list and who's going to be on your side or the side of the interests you care about in those moments, then discard whatever the hell's being talked about and go find an issue that is that centers those two questions. And that might help you feel like at least the work you're doing for yourself is more helpful. You, you just answered that quite beautifully as a citizen. How can you be involved? I guess I'm, I was thinking more as we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who want to get regular updates on the state of American politics, on the state of the race. Like, how do they watch this campaign without really having myocardial infarctions every week? How, how do you do that? but still sort of understand what the dynamics are that are shaping it and what, what matters and what doesn't, what is going to matter and what doesn't do the primaries matter? Do the legal skirmishes matter? Do does actual news about the economy or crime or Ukraine or Gaza matter? Does Dobbs matter? Yes. Great. Excellent. Okay. You're right. I still, you know, cling to the citizen's guide because it's going to keep us from going insane. Fair point. Very Amanda Ripley of you. Thank you. But is, but you know, there's the world we actually have to live in. Well, I mean, if you want to live in that world, it's basically going to come down to three or 400,000 voters in, you know, six, seven battleground states. Um, Forget the rest of the country and look at just what's going to happen in those individual states and then see if the voters, um, how are, how are the rhythms of the votes going to go in that state? Is it really all about the base? Is it basically going to come down to the weakness of the Biden coalition as it looks right now um, versus the very strong uh, Trump coalition and Trump base? Um, are the motivators that get the Trump base out, um, particularly among white evangelicals, which um, are um, grievance-infused um, uh uh, where voters have shown a, an ease, a surprising ease, frankly, for those of us who've covered it, for um, uh, for uh, self-interest over over 
country and all the old things they said they used to believe in. That's incredibly powerful. And, um, you know, is that going to be a stronger motivator for that base than whatever Joe Biden might talk about, whether it's abortion, democracy, democracy slash the threat from Donald Trump? I think issues like the economy are probably, if you were the Biden campaign, you obviously have to make the case on the economy, but it's very hard. So I would look in, you know, those states and then and then is it a question of of persuading voters or just turning out voters? And then what arguments are going to turn out those voters the most um, in those individual states? And uh, and and I'd love Emily to weigh in on this. Um, One of the things we saw in 2022 with abortion is that it had nothing to do with Joe Biden, but it turned out people for a whole for for very powerful identity connected reasons. Um, And so. Should people be paying attention to those kinds of issues that are going to motivate voters who then will will cast a ballot in the presidential campaign? And I would say also keep your eye as a voter on all the institutions that can have um, that are really up for grabs in this. I mean, the Supreme Court's reputation is really on the line. We've seen recently with the presidents of these Ivy League colleges what can happen when the political moment comes for you. Um, it can devour uh, people and create moments of real um change. Um, and so that's the Supreme Court's up for for that kind of treatment. The press is up for that kind of treatment. Individual lawmakers could uh, go through that kind of crucible. So um, that's something also to watch is which is the the possible shredding of some of our institutions in pretty quick order during and also obviously violence as a result of some of that during this period. Emily, to, to go to John's question, but I'll expand it. What are the ways you think that Dobbs and abortion, A, and the legal battles that Trump has and the the trials that he's facing could impact the election? How do we watch for how they will impact the election? The Supreme Court is going to hear this big case about abortion pill access. That is a federal issue. It's controlled by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, And also the U.S. Post Office plays an important role in mailing pills, um, especially into red states. And so that is going to it should be easy to draw a direct line from that case and abortion access to the presidential election. And then the the legal cases play in Trump's favor in the primaries. I think it's entirely uncertain whether that would will continue once we're in a general election race and people take it more seriously. Did you guys see this poll from the Daily Mail about how voters describe their choice between Trump and Biden if they have to choose just one word? And then they did word clouds of people's responses. And the top choice for Trump was revenge, which goes with what John was saying about retribution. And the top choice for Biden was nothing, although it was followed by economy and peace. Uh, But it does suggest that the Biden team has some messaging work to do. One of the things that I wonder about is, so we're going to have this campaign where people are going to be, again, be exposed to Trump in large quantities in ways that many of us have chosen not to be over the last several years. Like even though Trump has obviously been a huge figure in the landscape, you can avoid him by just not watching cable news, not paying attention to the things that he does. Um, During the presidential campaign, that will be much harder to do. So people are going to be, they're going to be getting their boluses of Trump every day. And so there's some theory, which is like, oh, that will just make remind people of what a terrible, toxic, deadly, disastrous figure he would be. This prospect of him will galvanize them. There's another side to that, which is that there, I think the huge worry for Biden is just people are not going to come out for him. 
And it's there's not enough people who come out against Trump to overcome the fact that Biden is just shedding people who are enthusiastic about his presence or you're sh- he's shedding young people, people of color who who, you know, might feel an obligation to vote for him, but just don't want to bother to vote. And and I, I guess I'm as a somebody who doesn't want Trump reelected president. I'm so worried that there is no that there's no obvious mechanism to to encourage these disaffected groups to come out for Biden. And I don't see what what that mechanism is going to be as the year goes along. Is there a mechanism, John? Well, I think the mechanism is presenting them with with the logical conclusion of a presidency founded on revenge. I mean, first of all, the idea that people wouldn't be shaken by the idea that a presidential campaign and a presidency would be founded around revenge is is already a weird world we're in. I mean, in other words, Joe Biden shouldn't even have to come up with a single word. There shouldn't have to be a single word uh, as long as it's not objectionable when your opponent is someone where people so readily uh, associate him with revenge. So that's already sort of shuddering. Um, but I think that the probably the strongest route for somebody in Joe Biden's cape position where he is an ineffective um, spokesperson for the things he has achieved, which by the way, are like specifically, particularly for his coalition, it's a big deal, right? He marshaled the forces of government and all of his skills to get stuff passed that's affecting their lives. It's affecting the middle class. That's helping the unions. Like that's all he has done all of that through the levers of government, which restore through the original theory of the case of his presidency, which restore the connection between the public interest and 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 government activity. Like he's done that. The CHIPS Act, the um, Inflation Reduction inflation Act. Inflation tamed, unemployment low, crime falling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All that. But he's a bad, he's just a bad messenger for that. Um, if the race is a, is a race between the strengths of the two bases in six, seven, or eight battleground states, and it's those three or 400,000 voters and it's all about turning out your base, whether um, economic roots to uh, economic pitches are the most powerful. I think that a pitch you could imagine more powerful, a pitch being that a presidency founded on revenge and the interests of a single man is going to be a presidency that has your interests not in mind if you are a Biden voter. And secondarily, it is an interest. It is a presidency that's interested in rising the the, the lives of white immigrants um, and native-born Americans, um, and that the people who will suffer in that, either through direct action or through neglect, are likely to be more likely to be people in the Biden coalition. Practical question, and then one philosophical question to get us out of here. The practical question, uh, I guess, more to John is: Is there any avenue remaining? Do you think for Nikki Haley to to nip this nomination away from Trump? Does that does that path actually still exist? It doesn't appear to exist. Donald Trump is on his way based on what we know from interviews and polling. And if you're going to believe a pollster, Ann Seltzer, who does the polling in Iowa is um, one of the best, if not the best. Um, it looks like Trump is on his way to win the Iowa caucuses by more than anyone has ever won it before in Republican um, politics, including George W. Bush, who in 2000 had no competition from McCain there and was running against, you know, people like Steve Forbes. And what's what's striking about what may very well happen in Iowa is if 2016 killed the 
um, white evangelical voter in South Carolina, by which I mean Donald Trump went into South Carolina, which is a state that supposedly liked George W. Bush because George W. Bush was himself an actual evangelical who had designed his life around Christ. And the evangelical voters in South Carolina did not support Jeb Bush connected to that former president they liked, but instead went by like 70% for Donald Trump, who shares nothing with them culturally or behaviorally, and who said that George W. Bush should be impeached for lying about Iraq. If if Donald Trump could win in South Carolina, given the fact that the, the previous understanding of the state and the, and the voters in the primary there was totally antithetical to his candidacy, that ended sort of the misunderstanding of the way white evangelicals would vote. Iowa, same thing. The old conceit about Iowa, which I which I offered for many, 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 many years, was that the voters there really want to talk to the candidates and figure out who they are, and they want to go through them all and figure out what their positions are, and da-da. they're going to vote for Trump by maybe 30 points more than the next person. They haven't gone out and, and analyzed every candidate, and they haven't used this extraordinary discernment. They've gone with, you know, with Donald Trump. So that uh, that's what's likely to happen. Emily, let's close with a with a more philosophical question, which I think a lot of people began. I don't know if I use the word dread, but there is a sense of dread that a lot of people have when they think about politics and selection. What is something that productive that people can do for the election, not necessarily for their community? There are lots of productive things like we talked about with Amanda Ripley the other day that you can do in your life. But if you say you, I want to make a difference in this election in one way or another, what is something productive that someone can actually do that doesn't, isn't soul crushing, all consuming, destroying, ruinous? Huh? I mean, you could pick a lane and learn a lot about a particular topic and then follow that topic and try to inform other people about it. Um, especially something like the economy, which has a lot of salience, um, or reproductive rights or, you know, what causes crime to go up and down. You could pick something that you think in your um, neck of the woods has the potential to sway people and then just try to learn a lot about it and how to talk about it in a way that people can actually absorb information. Especially talk to people who live in, say, Wisconsin or, or Arizona or <laughs> yeah, Georgia. Or just a part of your state that uh, where there actually is like... A, a, a contested race of some sort. How about that? I guess I, you know, I, and when I say that, I think that it's important to be humble about one's ability to actually persuade. That is hard. It's hard to persuade people and it's okay not to be able to persuade people, but maybe feeling like you have something that you can say that makes sense to you, that is legible, like that maybe that's enough. I want to give a thank you to our Slate Plus listeners. You have helped us keep the show going for so long and you get you get lots of things for your subscription you get bonus segments on every gabfest episode and other slate podcasts you get discounts to live shows we just were planning our live show roster we'll be doing a bunch of live shows in 2024 that slate plus listeners will get discounts for um you don't hit the paywall on the slate site much more and this week for a slate plus segment we're going to talk about whether self-help is possible or to ask the question a different way is it even reasonable to think you could ever stick to your New Year's resolution. So if you're a Slate Plus member, thank you. Enjoy that segment. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Elite university president in 2024 seems like the worst, best job in America. Uh, on the one hand, you're president of university. You've got all the robes, the tassels, the 
may I present you with your honorary doctorate, President Obama. On the other hand, the faculty hate you. You spend most of the time sucking up to donors who also probably hate you. Most of the students think you're reactionary scum. Your neighbors in the town think you're a bully. You have literally no constituency except whatever university board appointed you, and they will toss you off the boat the second it gets above you know, 71 degrees in the kitchen. So Claudine Gay discovered all this during the past couple of months. Harvard's new president, very new president, resigned after six months in the job, done in superficially by charges of plagiarism, as we will discuss, at a somewhat deeper level by an orchestrated conservative campaign accelerated by the campus response to the war in Gaza, the campaign to to scorch the reputation of elite universities for their wokeness. And I think at the deepest level by something else, which is by the utter confusion about within universities themselves about what their purpose is, who they serve, and who should call the shots. Harvard in this case, capitulated to the conservative assault, but mostly because neither Gay nor Harvard seemed to understand what they did stand for, what they, what was the positive vision that they were supposed to be articulating in opposition to it. Um, so, Emily, the proximate cause of of Gay's departure is plagiarism, uncovered and exposed at a maximally inconvenient time by conservative critics. You're in the academy. It seemed basically not that she didn't screw up. She obviously screwed up, but it seemed like a, 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 a death penalty for misdemeanor offense kind of situation. Yeah. I find this whole outcome super unfortunate, uh, partly for the reasons you're saying. Yes, I think that she plagiarized given the definition that Harvard uses for that. I also think these were misdemeanor plagiarism offenses. And there have been other cases of this in, you know, recent history with other public figures, not necessarily university presidents, but other prominent people. And I feel like we kind of understood that there was a misdemeanor category and you got embarrassed and then you kind of went on. I think Harvard screwed up in several ways. One of them was that when first allegations started coming to light, they said, oh, we're going to do our own review. And then they rushed it. And then they set a standard, which later revelations from not from Harvard breached. So in other words, there were other things that she had, like other sentences she had copied without um, attribution, which were really technical descriptions. I mean, this is all so boring in terms of it's not idea theft, which is like the felony charge of plagiarism. Um, but because they had kind of rushed their own review and then set the standard, I think then they were stuck. And there was this idea of like, you know, oh, how can you have a university president violate standards that an undergraduate would get in trouble for? Um, and yet it's not simple, right? Because of the fire Claudine Gay had also taken for, um, you know, anti-Semitism on campus and how she'd handled it. I never really understood what she had done that was so bad. Like, yes, her initial statement about the Hamas attacks in Israel was kind of weak. That was true of basically almost every university president, right? Like the universities froze with this incredibly divisive issue um, that had implications for speech on campus, was totally open for conservatives expanding their attack because now there are all these Jewish people who are angry um, about the way the campuses are handling are handling protests by students. The students are pushing back. It was a big, giant mess. And then she had this really unfortunate moment of congressional testimony, but it seemed like it had all passed. And so 
I kind of want to make this a simple question about plagiarism, but I can't like (laughs) because of the campaign against her, which obviously was really, really about this broader attack by conservatives on universities. And I think we should also talk about the legitimate grievances conservatives have about universities, because part of the problem with this is like it's all threaded together. Right. And then obviously the first fact that she was the first black woman president of Harvard also played a role here. Um, I thought Gay wrote a really good piece yesterday in the New York Times about this, which I also recommend. Ooh, disagree. Oh, good. Tell me why you disagree. Well, I think so her, her, I mean, she was writing about what well, you, you can characterize it. She was writing about why she was defenestrated and sort of said, this is a, the, the line that I saw was that I pulled out was this is merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith in pillars of American societies, which I think is true. I I do think that it is true that what is happening is that, that there's a mistrust of institutions that has become politically advantageous for conservatives and, and an annoying, I mean, part of it stems from this annoyance that there are these elite institutions that seem unwelcoming to conservatives and conservative ideas, but it is a, it's a, it's a concerted attack on them. I guess what I was I found totally inadequate in her essay was that she never articulated what the purpose of Harvard was. What is, how is Harvard a pillar of American society? Like, I think that's where universities have failed. I think, I think public health officials and librarians and gynecologists have done a fantastic job articulating why what they do is fundamental to the health and safety and identity of, of Americans. I don't think that universities have done a job at all in explaining why universities exist, what their purpose is, how they serve, how they do anything, especially at the Harvard and Yale level, anything other than sort of reify networks of, of, of rich people who will then go on to lead investment banks and media companies. Do you think they are in, they're unable to more broadly articulate that for the very reason you started with at the beginning, um, David, which is that the, the job of being a university president is a money raising job, essentially? You're bringing in the revenue, and that requires a certain malleability of interest, a certain set of skills that are um, different from the ones that would make you a successful, strong respondent to the question of what are you there for in uh, in the American story. I just want to say she did say that here are the ideals animating Harvard since its founding, excellence, openness, independence, truth. Now, maybe you want more on that. And that's your critique. But she yeah, did I mean, say that. My, yeah, she does say that. But it's not. But it isn't. I mean, I don't think that what Har- Harvard. I, I guess I think back to a different time and where university presidents played a different role where you, you know, there is no Vannevar Bush. There is no Woodrow Wilson. There's no James Bryan Conant. There's no John Maynard Hutchins in the, the American landscape. You couldn't name a single if you are if you're an average american if you're even an average american with an elite college degree you could probably name one college president and that was the president of the college that you went to even <laughs> that i'm not sure i could have i didn't i'd for, totally but forgotten what's the, what's point Lawrence, are you making with that that I'm, they're not my, super famous Mitch like Daniels. no that they don't that 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 the that used to be for a lot of different reasons that university leaders could helped shape what America meant they supply they sort of served the government they served institutions they they were public figures in a way that universities were identified as having this broader public purpose and that's totally disappeared as university presidents have become fundraisers if universities have become this institution for raising money and building buildings and 
And I don't think, I, I just think it's very hard with almost no exceptions to identify a way in which universities are, are, are serving a public purpose that they can articulate to the world and are doing a good job with it. And it's not just that conservatives have undermined that argument and been like, oh, you're just taken over by diversity and wokeness and DEI classes and, and indoctrination. It's that universities themselves just don't do a, a, a good job of presenting a vision for what their purpose is in a modern America. Huh. I find myself in this odd position of wanting to defend the academy, please, which like I usually do. don't. Please but, do it. Uh, this is hard because usually I'm on the other side of this argument. Okay, so universities in a lot of ways have become big ones, uh, research, particularly science research or medical institutions with a college um, kind of attached to them, right? Because that's where so much of the engine of the money coming in is. However, they are still doing amazing, important, incredible research in instances. They are training future leaders, educating people, making sure that, you know, the American economy has people who have critical thinking and um, all the other skills they should be having. So if you're thinking about universities writ large, I feel like it's really important not to just discount all of that. The big private universities have some serious hypocrisy going on in the middle of them, right? Which is all of this wealth and um, and fundraising going to a relatively small number of people writ large in the country and having it be more and more dominated by liberals and moderates and feeling inhospitable to conservatives because of the low number of faculty and students who identify as conservatives. And so I think what seems to me real is that they don't have the same kind of bipartisan appeal that they used to, and that that's the sort of legitimate part of the conservative grievance. And I wonder if in the soul searching, which should happen, whether it does or not, part of what we should be seeing here is a way to try to increase the, you know, conservative presence on universities so that people have some buy-in. Now, I don't want that to read as like some big sop to Chris Rufo, because I don't think this attack was a good faith attack, right? I think what Chris Rufo, um, who was one of Claudine Gay's main critics, did with kind of demonic genius was to be a person who, it's not clear to me he particularly has high standards, but the, the university, the institution still laying claim to high standards. And so then when you call the institution on its own standards, which in this case was plagiarism, um, you get what you want on the back of this larger campaign. And that, I thought, was what Gay did a really good job of talking about in her essay in The New York Times this week. I mean, I think your point, Emily, that universities as a whole, American universities are still where people aspire to go from around the world. And great American research universities are accomplishing an enormous amount um of good but when you think about the the kind of brand names of elite education the harvards the yales mit stanford penn princeton there is this way in which they have become so i feel like they're so removed from the public life that they've they're 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 cloistered they're monasteries um to utterly disconnected from all the huffing and puffing and toing and froing that the rest of the country has to do all the time. They've, I guess that they've lost a sense of connection to the country as a whole and instead have, have, have barnacled themselves to this world of elite globalism 
and and overclassness. And as somebody who's like completely in that world, like I guess I don't care. I mean, it's like fine, I guess, but I really worry at how disengaged and disconnected these institutions, the students that go to them are from everything else that's happening. And I guess politics is part of it, but I don't think politics is all of that. I don't think it's just that they don't have conservatives. That's one piece of it, but it's also just a sense like that they exist to monastery is the closest thing I can think. Well, I'm just going to break off the piece that I, that I can, or where I feel some confidence. Um, The first, um, the first is this was an upheaval in American I think you can say that it's not people in American public life because I think it also affects MIT and Penn. Um, and, and someone should tell me whether the what happened at Penn with its president, who did not have a plagiarism issue and was forced to step down faster, um, what that tells us or doesn't tell us about Gay, who looked like she was going to make it through this, frankly, um, before the second round of plagiarism. Um, so was it that she was ultimately forced out because of her race or that she wasn't forced out earlier because of her race? And what are the arguments for and against both of those things? But that's not my area of strength. What I would like to say is the following. One, this is a this is a huge moment in American political life driven by conserve by don't know if they're conservatives. I guess let's call them conservatives for the purpose of this, where Donald Trump wasn't really involved at all. Um, and that's interesting to me because we've always talked about how much is Donald Trump driving um, the brand of politics that he excels in and how much of it is is growing up with entrepreneurial um, um, people who are seeking a route to glory through a kind of Trump model. And how much does that exist outside of him? In this case, it did. Secondly, if you took the people who successfully um, waged this campaign, the standard of purity that they apply to a university of president. Let's apply that sense of rigidity or maybe just one tenth of that sense of rigidity to a standard in another job. So the question would then be is, is it okay for a person who swears an oath to the Constitution to shred the Constitution and then be rewarded with a second term for doing so? If you are a standard keeper who wants to hold people accountable for breaking a standard at such a high level as was executed in these cases, then apply that standard to this other case. And it shows you why. Um, you know, this is obviously not entirely in good faith. That does remind me of something why it's so hard to be a college president is that you actually have no constituency. It's not like you're a politician. A politician has is voted into office by a large group of people who have a vested interest. A, a college president is chosen by some tiny little... Uh, who can uh, then force you to resign if they yeah, don't support you anymore people, as opposed right. to... Right. Like, I kept thinking, why... Yeah. Like, why did Ralph Northam, the former governor of Virginia, get to stick around after his humiliation? And that's the difference. It's what you just said. Yeah. And so if you when you don't have a constituency, you you, you just you just uh, out of luck. Um, so, um, I mean, Emily, I, you want I the, guess you get the last I, word here because. Yeah, I mean, I think race plays out in this case in different ways, right? I mean, it made Gay vulnerable to this critique that her scholarship was thin and that she was elevated um, above the thinness because Harvard wanted to hire this black woman as its first president. I mean, obviously, that's first of all, first of all, why is it that we think like 
being an excellent college president does not necessarily mean that you are the leader in your field. And I also don't think it's true that every former Harvard president was some towering giant in their field. And I can think of some giants in their fields I know around Yale University. I would definitely not wanting running the school. So, and she was by reports a really good um, dean of the faculty in arts of arts and sciences, which is an important job at university. So, I find that whole confection of complaints about her in a kind of anti-affirmative action way to be uncompelling in the end. And then you're also left with the fact that there was clearly on the part of people like Rufo, this kind of glee and relishing of taking her down because of this affirmative action critique. And I just found that really loathsome. And I kind of end on this sad note of just feeling like the level of public humiliation right now and the kind of um, gloating over falls and then what it's like to live with that after this campaign is over that just seems like just bad to me um and and not worth like whatever upholding of some you know technically correct standard of plagiarism was at stake here for harvard the homicide rate in the u.s dropped 13 percent in 2023 a record drop most major cities saw huge declines in homicides and the decline means that 2,000 fewer Americans were killed than would have been had we maintained the 2022 rates. There's also a significant decline in other major crimes, taking us down to 60s levels in things like property crime. Uh, the crime drop was in suburbs, in cities, in rural areas. It was all over the country. It is unalloyed good news. And yet, uh, we are not feeling it. According to Americans... According to 80% of Americans, crime is rising. More than 90% of Republicans believe that. Nearly 60% of Democrats believe it. There is a vibe crime wave the way there is a vibe recession. It is fascinating, both as a kind of issue, why homicides have dropped, but also why people don't sense it. So, Emily, why has homicide dropped so dramatically? Or is it just that it's retreated back to where it was pre-pandemic? I think it's retreating back to where it was pre-pandemic. I think it turns out that 2020 to 2022 were an aberration from this pattern of homicide dropping from these terrible highs that we had in the 80s and 90s and other violent crimes as well. One of the things that's going to be endlessly interesting about that, if that turns out to be true, is figuring out what exactly were the factors, right? Because you can blame COVID and social isolation and the schools closing um, and the lack of services, which tends to be my go-to. You can blame the courts closing down and fewer people going to jail if you're more kind of punitively minded and think the legal system uh, needs to grind on in order to prevent crime, or you can blame the protests, right? And the idea that the, the police were um, forced or uh, coerced into not doing their jobs. There are, everything happened at the same time. Um, and I'm not sure how we're going to uh, tease those things out. But this does seem like really good news. And I think, frankly, the reason that people haven't, um, taken it in and think that crime is rising is media coverage, um, especially like these viral videos of, you know, shoplifting, um, all the carjackings. I mean, and David, I'm curious because you've been talking about crime rising in D.C. a lot and it is rising in D.C. You're right about that. But your level of frustration about it 
can make it seem like a bigger problem. Um, and I wonder when you looked at these statistics, whether, like just what you thought about it, like, did it seem like, well, this is other parts of the country. And so it doesn't affect my life. Um, I'm still frustrated. Or do you feel like, well, maybe I'll start thinking about this a little differently? No, I was like, what the what the fuck is wrong with D.C.? Our homicide rate went up 36% and carjackings are up 300%. It's not, I did not make me feel better at all. It didn't make me feel like, oh, great, I'm safe because, you know, homicides in Minneapolis and Detroit and New York City are down. Like, what do I care if the, I mean, I care because fewer people are being killed, but like, it doesn't affect my life. No, I've, I, I, I was shocked. I, I, did, I actually hadn't, tuned into this enough to realize that DC was such an aberration. I just thought things are bad in DC to learn that DC things are so bad in DC and it's an aberration was, was a double blow. I I'm no, it's, it's very, it feels weird in DC because it does feel much less safe than it did just a couple of years ago. My kids are very cautious in ways they weren't. Um, and, and the fact that it is, it is not merely homicide. It is crimes of, all sorts that are up in DC is, is a little bit scary. And, and I just am, I am perplexed and flummoxed that what works in what seems to be happening in other cities is not happening. I don't know whether that's a failure of policing, a failure of, of, of non-policing services here, or that something, there's something fundamentally different about DC that makes it not able to return to the way things were before. I mean, I do know that DC has this enormous absenteeism problem in public yeah. schools which Although i feel like must be a contributor yeah yeah that's I, not specific to dc i guess we that's still have true. That problem. yeah i guess dc's i maybe that maybe it just felt like it's particularly bad here but maybe you guys are right i don't know no i no i don't i didn't it didn't make me feel better i mean i'm glad for the country but it didn't make me feel better about my own life yeah i wonder as a press matter if one can even talk about the press as a collective anymore which you can't really but to your point emily you have you have one um, arm of the public information um, structure that exists to basically freak people out about crime and where these new homicide figures are probably have probably not even been reported. Um, and then you have the what I would call the traditional media, which has all kinds of flaws on its part, too, which is the laziness of covering crime is very easy to cover. It's, you know, there are pictures, um, it gets people to tune in. Um, you know, uh, I mean, of crime of all sorts. Like, I mean, look at how much uh, of the Epstein uh, uh, names were covered when they came out, even when nobody knew what the names were or how they were associated with Epstein. It was just like, everybody's going to tune into this and we'll just kind of say that releasing these names doesn't necessarily mean they were involved with Epstein, but all the energy of our coverage and all of what we're trying to attract you to watch is to find out whether they really were connected. Like the energies of modern um, coverage of crime in even responsible media are, it would seem to exacerbate this, um, would it seem to exacerbate this problem. And so the question then is like, would it have been more useful if all of the energy more of the energy we're spent trying to get at those causes that you were talking about, Emily, which are multifactored and really interesting, um, uh, that led maybe led to this spike. Um, but it, I guess we never really get there. If you were a leader in a city or you're a national leader and you wanted to try to correct this narrative and try to align people with what's actually happening, what should you do, Emily? 
I mean, I think you should talk about the numbers going down. I just went to the um, inauguration for the mayor of New Haven and he talked about and so did the police chief, like the actual numbers and what they are trying to do to address them. I thought there was um, this really interesting uh, example of that from San Antonio um, in which the police chief was talking about how the city's computer aided dispatch system identified the parts of the city with the highest numbers of violent crime calls and even the days and times when the calls were going up. And then they just parked police cars at that location with their emergency lights on for 10 to 15 minutes. So they weren't stopping people. They weren't making arrests. They were just like showing up in these hotspots. That is a like pretty time-tested strategy at this point that you can kind of think of policing sometimes as being like scarecrows where you just are present. You don't have to do the things that necessarily involve like scooping up a lot of people, um, potentially violating their constitutional rights with racial profiling, arresting them, all the punitive measures. You just have to kind of be there. Um, So I liked that example. And I would I would add, although this is a little obtuse, but is to say um, in this context, you know, these numbers are going down and that's amazing. But if you don't want those numbers to go up again, let's think of some of the lingering effects of those the, of those uh, inputs that cause numbers to spike, which is to say, look at what's happened and the long term and generational effects of educational decline during the pandemic and kids who are a year behind, a year and a half behind where they should be in some number of years, if they don't have opportunity or aren't brought back up to speed, are likely to be more ripe for crime activity than not. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you guys are, you know, walking cavalierly, coolly, calmly through the streets of your city at night, unworried about crime, drink in your hand, probably not with a drink in your hand, because that's probably a public offense and you probably get arrested for that. But you're chattering carefree what you'll be chattering about john dickerson i was um struck uh i was about to say literally but i was not physically assaulted but i was struck by a picture um uh of a gentleman named robert cornelius um i can't remember how i came across it but robert cornelius was appears to have been the person who took the world's first selfie was a self-portrait taken in 1839. Um, and we'll post a link to it, um, or you can just search for it on the Library of Congress. Um, he was 30 years old, and he was in, he was in his, um, his family ran a gaslighting business. Um, and he set up a uh, primitive, the most primitive um, uh, camera and stood there for 15 minutes um, which is what you had to do. You had to remain essentially motionless um, for the photograph to take. And the picture feels very, first of all, he looks like a barista in Brooklyn. Um, but it's just kind of haunting to look back into 1839. Um, and there's something just f- quite modern about this picture. Um, and also the idea of a person standing still for what probably felt like a maybe stupid frivolous, or maybe he knew what he was doing. I don't know. I found it very transporting. Anyway, so there you go. Go check out this picture by Robert Cornelius, the first selfie ever taken in um, 1839. There's this thing about photographs. There was an exhibit at the National Gallery maybe 10 years ago of early snapshots, like brownie camera snapshots. Um 
and these were photos that must have been taken like 20s, 1920s and 30s. And my overwhelming sense about walking through that exhibit was everyone in this photo is dead. Yeah. Now. Oh, yeah. Everyone is dead, which you don't feel with a paint with a painting because the painting is already in this other medium. It's already sort of an alienating medium that you don't really think about it. But when you see photographs of people, there is this way in which you assume because it's a relatively new technology you assume like oh this person is right here with me they're here they're around the corner i could give them a phone call or something and but they're all dead photographs have death in them from the minute you take them they are an attempt to stop and capture the march of time which has as its most signature aspect the fact that uh we will all die happy Um, holiday everybody (laughs) (laughs) enjoy your cocktail Because it's all uh, a single straight line to the grave, pal. Yeah, Emily, drink drink yourself into the grave here, Emily. Yeah, I've been fascinated this week by the Israeli Supreme Court's decision to strike down the first part of this judicial overhaul package that um, this very right-wing uh, government in Israel led by Benjamin Netanyahu passed. It's an eight to seven decision to strike down what's what was um, an effort on the government to curb the court's power to uh, strike down an act of government for being unreasonable. So in other words, there was this reasonableness standard that the court could apply, um, particularly in cases where someone became a cabinet minister, but had like a history of corruption, for example, that was the thing that got, uh, part of what got the Netanyahu government extremely exercised. Um, so it can seem sort of technical, but it's important. And one larger part of the ruling was that 11 of the 15 justices, so a supermajority, said that the court has the power, generally speaking, to strike down what's called a basic law in Israel, which is essentially at this point like a quasi-constitutional amendment to Israel's quasi-constitution. And so it's a way of the court's assert, it's the way for the court to assert its role in a democracy with not a lot of checks and balances. It's a pretty fragile democracy. And the court is saying, for reasons of separations of powers and to make sure that we hold on to the democracy in the long term, we need to make sure that the court can override an act of government um, that seems like it's at odds with Israel, Israel's quasi-constitution, Israel's basic values of being a Jewish and democratic state. And it can do so in part because these constitutional amendments can pass with just a bare majority of the Knesset. So that's important and interesting. Um, It's obviously a kind of sideline for the Israel-Hamas war going on in Gaza, which continues. But because of that war, Netanyahu's government seems like at the moment they're not going to challenge the ruling. And so it's possible that this major threat to democracy within Israel um, is now less present, um, although obviously the problems with the occupation and the West Bank um, very much continue and threaten its, Israel's democracy in a whole different way. My chatter uh, is about a wonderful obituary I read for Maureen Flavin Sweeney, who is an Irish woman, died at age 100 this week. Uh, she worked at a post office in the West Coast of Ireland. And she had an incredibly consequential role in one of the most consequential events in the 20th century, which is that she was the weather forecaster on duty in, on, in her coastal village 
June 3rd, 1944. And in those days, the weather forecast was sort of you watched where the weather was coming from and you had somebody who was closer to where the weather was coming from would report to you, here's the weather that's coming your way. And Maureen Flavin saw the barometric pressure dropping and was sent her notices. She didn't know where her her weather reports were going. It turned out they were going to the supreme uh, command of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was planning D-Day. And her report on June 3rd that said the barometer barometric pressure was dropping, that meant bad weather was coming, uh, caused Eisenhower to delay the D-Day landings by a day to wait for slightly better weather. And uh, she didn't know for 12 years after D-Day that her weather forecast was the thing that had actually changed the planning of the landings. She had no idea that this was the, this was the major point that, that changed uh, Eisenhower's mind. And um, it's just an extraordinary example of one person doing her job, just being on duty from 12 a.m. to 4 a.m. one night on her 21st birthday uh, could, could shape the course of the invasion that would shape the course of the world and, you know, save potentially thousands of lives and, and made that operation much more likely to succeed. Uh, she went on to have a completely, you know, regular mundane life working in the post office. Her family were lighthouse keepers, um, lived in, lived in this corner of Ireland. Um, wow. Amazing, amazing, amazing obituary. Listeners, you sent us chatters. You email them to us at gabfestatslate.com. So many good ones coming in and really appreciate it. Please keep them coming. And this one from Eric Kaleda, uh, about Madagascar was amazing. Uh, it was a story that I had actually followed too. Hi, this is Eric from Tuppahoe, New York. And my chatter today is about a recent video from Vox titled, What's Inside This Crater in Madagascar? It starts when the reporter, while randomly scrolling through Google Earth, discovers a small village inside of a crater of a dormant volcano in an extremely remote area of Madagascar. They call the internet for any trace of information about what this village is and why it came to be only to come up completely empty. Not to be defeated, they actually go so far as to hire a remote reporting team in Madagascar to find this village and follow up on the inhabitants inside. I won't spoil the ending, but let's just say that the journey is more impressive than the destination. Along the way, you come to learn about the farmers who live in that village, the ancient geology that ripped continents apart, the people of Madagascar, and the beautiful land that they inhabit. If you're up for a short virtual adventure, I highly recommend checking this video out. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. It's an election year. I hope that Alicia is re-elected as VP of Audio. I don't know. I don't know what seems know likely what her campaign her campaign is going to be based on, but it's it's going to be a tough year. It's going to be a tough year. I don't even know who's ahead of the ticket. Who's the president of audio for Slate? Uh, for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? So it's a new year. Some people not I. Some people make New Year's resolutions. Other people use the New Year as an occasion to sort of 
get kickstarted on on improving themselves, changing their lives. It's a, f- a fresh start. Uh, and I guess I'm having a dry January, so maybe I'm doing something. Oh, um, my goodness. What? Are you That's not having bad. a dry January? No, I just envy you so much. I don't, you know, I... I I don't drink during the week and I am so much, I sleep so much better. I'm more healthy, uh, but I lack the willpower um, to make a dry January. Um, so yeah. I admire your willpower. I don't have that much willpower. I only got a little bit of willpower. Uh, and I it is does it include before. edibles? No, I do not. Dry January does not include edibles. Oh, well, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> what do you mean? It's, it just is different. Those are different things. Alcohol. Sure. And totally. hundred percent. You're not, you not depriving I, yourself of the mild. I'm not taking away all my pleasures. I'm having yeah. dessert too. I'm, uh, so anyway, the, this got us thinking about whether change is possible. Anyway, is, is, can you, can, can New Year's resolutions work? Uh, is change of other sort possible? How, if you want to change, how do you change? Um, I think the problem with the New York New Year's resolution as a model is is that this this idea that today I'm a new me, like today I'm a totally different person and I'm going to be completely different than I was yesterday, and that this is going to persist. That seems like a, a hard thing to pull off, um, but there are other ways to change as well. I think there is a psychologically, I think psychologically studied benefit to the New Year New You spark. But it's an, it's a prison. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.